Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Well, welcome to part three. This is the third installment of a three-part series on wet AMD. We're talking about pipeline therapies in a very, very exciting arena right now. And specifically in this episode, we're going to focus on two very exciting novel therapeutics. One is KSI 301 and the other is GB 102. I want to also take a moment to thank Evolve Medical Education for organizing this exciting educational initiative along with other excellent program. Um, programming. And it is my pleasure and honor to welcome and introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Basil Williams, who's joining us for this particular episode. He is at the Cincinnati Eye Institute, and he's the Mary Knight Asbury Chair of Ocular Oncology and Assistant Professor at the Department of Ophthalmology University of Cincinnati. So Basil, it's great to have you. Thank you for being here with us today. Uh, Thanks so much for inviting me. I greatly appreciate it. Of course. So you're going to lead us into a discussion first on KSI 301. This is a really exciting molecule that we're going to hear a lot about in the next year or two as uh, the phase three data is read out for the neovascular AMD study. So this is a anti-VEGF antibody targeting VEGF A, but what's unique about it is that it's mounted on a very novel molecular platform called an antibody biopolymer conjugate platform or an ABC platform. Basil, can you tell us a little bit more about KSI 301? Yeah, so it is, uh, as you just mentioned, it's a really uh, interesting bit of technology uh, where they build this antibody biopolymer conjugate platform, and that basically allows for a much heavier molecule. And having a heavier molecule, theoretically anyway, allows for a higher molar dose concentration to be delivered. Uh, It is transparent, and so it can uh, be seen through. Uh, And so uh, when this goes in the eye, it's supposed to have uh, longer, better durability, better efficacy, and it's also supposed to have really good systemic clearance. So the antibody is single site specific, and it's stably linked to the phosphorylcholine biopolymer, and so it allows for the extended duration of action. And then, you know, as we talked about, it's optically clear and gives a high molar dose concentration of the medication. Yeah, so that's really exciting because I think one of the greatest unmet needs right now in the area of neovascular AMD really is this quest for longer durability. And you'll have a great case at the end of today's discussion to really highlight what those needs look like in the real world. Let's move on to some of the data here. First, looking at phase 1B. Now, this was an interesting study because um, uniquely, they looked at three different indications. They looked at RVO, neovascular AMD, as well as DME. Tell us about the large phase 1B study here. Right, yeah, so this was a very interesting study, um, and they used it for multiple uh, reasons or multiple pathologies that often require anti-VEGF medications, as you mentioned. So uh, these were uh, treatment-naive patients, and they gave them three monthly loading doses at two different doses of the medication, and each patient was followed monthly. Now, specifically, uh, the retreatment criteria was uh, pre-specified criteria, um, depending on the central thickness, um, change in best corrected visual acuity, uh, and investigators had the opportunity to intervene at any time uh, to give injections uh, when they thought it was necessary. And so... Um, specifically speaking of the macular degeneration group, um, it, it, um, yeah, so it was important to know um, that 
the durability, they looked at it and two thirds of patients had a six month or longer uh, treatment free window after the three loading doses. And I think in macular degeneration in particular, they capped it. So they had a six at six months, basically you have to be retreated. Um, and so of the total study, 54% only required one retreatment after the three loading doses, whereas 80% required two or fewer retreatments. So that basically means that on average, you were getting about five treatments uh, per year with the three loading doses and then uh, the two treatments afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and for macular degeneration in particular, you were getting about a six letter improvement over the course of that one year. Now, I think one thing that's interesting that you were just talking about, uh, Christina, is that, you know, one of the things we really need in this space is medications that are more durable uh, because we have medications that work fairly well. Uh, but one of the things that we think about is the safety. Um, especially with uh, more recent drugs that have come out and, and the potential challenges with safety in that situation. And so looking at the safety in this situation, there was uh, about 0.3% of intraocular inflammation with very minimal cells, and it seemed to respond uh, to topical treatment. So uh, the study is ongoing, but at least at year one, there is pretty strong data, uh, especially looking at the macular degeneration group. Yeah, and I think you bring up such an interesting point. So just to uh, reiterate, since I don't think it clearly says on this slide, but this is the phase 1B results for the uh, one-year time point uh, of the neovascular AMD patients. And you're right, it was a capped PRN where they had to be treated at least every six months. But I think it's really exciting that two-thirds had a six-month or longer treatment-free interval during that one-year period. I mean, that is something that we really haven't seen with other drugs thus far. And so that would really make a big impact, I think, for patients and their treatment burden overall. And then the other point that I just want to highlight that you did a lovely job covering is it was with regard to safety. You know, I think this really looks very promising and favorable so far. There was some inflammation, but you can see it's a very low rate. And then when you look at the actual inflammation that we're talking about, it's not the vasculitis and the choroiditis that we've been seeing with some of the other drugs. These are just minimal cells. But I agree with you, Basil, that I think one of the lessons that we've learned sort of the hard way in recent times with some of our new drugs has been that, you know, can we really count on a trial with fewer than 150 people, even though if you add up all the different trials that are ongoing right now with KSI 301, it has been used many, many, many times. Um, but, you know, it always, we always really look to that real world um, and having those large tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients now, I think before we will really feel confident about it, but I agree that it seems promising so far. So that's really exciting. Now, they just completed enrollment for the study, um, studies phase 2B3 called Dazzle. That's really exciting. And this is expected to read out either later this year. I think we're going to hear a little bit some, something about this or at the beginning of 2022. But tell us a little bit about the design of Dazzle. Yeah, so uh, the Dazzle study is a multi-centered study looking at the five milligram dose of KSI 301. And again, similar to the 1B study, it's used in treatment naive patients. And this is specifically for patients with neovascular AMD. So there were two arms to the study, again, with three monthly loading doses. And arm one was the KSI 301 dose. Uh, and they got three loading doses. And then afterwards, uh, they were injected at uh, multiple options for time points. So either at 12 weeks, 16 weeks, or 
or 20 weeks that were predetermined. And then in arm two, they were compared to a flibercept, again, with three loading doses and thereafter every eight weeks. So the primary endpoint was looking at the best corrected visual acuity at one year, um, but there would be continued treatment and follow-up up to two years. So they did enroll about 550 patients worldwide. And so this is powered to look at uh, non-inferiority, uh, which I think is something that's going to be important to, to assess um, at the conclusion of this study. Um, and so they also did uh, make the um, retreatment criteria a little bit more stringent. And so uh, as far as the amount of the central uh, uh, thickness, um, it's a little bit smaller for retreatment. And they did remove the investigator ability uh, to adjust the retreatment criteria as well. Um, and so as we stated, uh, the inclusion criteria is treatment naive. Uh, with a visual acuity range pretty standard in most studies. Exclusion criteria also uh, standard. We talked a little bit about the retreatment criteria with uh, only an increase in 50 uh, or greater microns with a decrease in five letters uh, compared to the week 12 visit um, or a decrease in 10 letters. And then anatomically, uh, an increase in 75 microns compared to week 12 or new macular hemorrhage. And so uh, they kind of built upon what was found in the 1B study to create this uh, trial. And I think this is something that's going to be very interesting to see. It is powered very well. Uh, and so uh, I look forward to seeing those results for this promising medication. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if we can get a reliable intravitreal injection with a good safety profile, at least so far, that we're using every three, four, or five months, that may trump some of the other options that we're looking at where you might have to take a patient to surgery or you might have to inject a you know gene therapy that could have some untoward effects later on. Um, so I think this is really exciting. I agree with you. I'm looking forward to seeing the data. Just want to highlight one point that you mentioned, which is the visual and anatomic retreatment criteria was more stringent here than the 1B study. I think it was a CST um, that used to be greater or equal than 75 microns, and they really wanted to tighten that. And I think part of that is to reflect more, more of what we may be doing you know, in the real world, where we are uh, trying to treat to dry, at least to this point still. So I think those were all very um, important changes. Uh, but let me ask you this, you know, these are treatment naive patients, Basil, that they were looking at in these studies. If we were to get KSI 301 in our hands in the next two, three, five years, is this a drug that you would, you know, turn to as a first line agent for your patients? Yeah, so I think that's a fantastic question, and I think it really is important to somewhat temper expectations because I think whenever a new drug comes on the market, especially considering how things have gone the last few years, people might be a little hesitant to use that as first line because, as we know, we have really good anti-VEGF medications that work quite well at this point, and we are looking for extended duration and, in some situations, better efficacy, but since our medications work so well now, I think it is going to uh, require some time before people use new medications as first line. So again, I think this is really, really exciting, but I think in the real world, at least initially, this medication is likely going to be used uh, later down the line, either with a, if after other anti-VEGFs are not working as well, or if you can't extend patients as much as you would want to, then this is kind of where this medication would come in. And I think it's important to know um, that they won't be treatment naive. And so you might not get the same boost in that population. 
Yeah, very well said. Couldn't have said it better. So let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about our second agent that we're going to discuss in this uh, episode. And that's GB102 from Graybug, also known as Sunitinib. This is exciting. And I'll tell you why I think this is exciting. A lot of the agents that we are we currently have or that we're studying really focus on VEGFA. And sunitinib is, sunitinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that really takes a broader approach where you're stepping back seeing if we can target more globally from a broader aspect, potentially uh, allowing for better durability, maybe better efficacy. And so that is uh, one of the things that excites me about GB102. Can you walk us through an overview, Basil, of this drug? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So like you said, it's a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor that has uh, both pan-VEGF as well as uh, placental growth factor inhibition. And one of the interesting things about it, it's created in this kind of proprietary microparticle formulation. And so when it is injected into the eye, it kind of aggregates and uh, will have a gradual release of the medication. So it'll be sustained therapeutic levels. Uh, And so I think that is definitely going to be, uh, it's an interesting mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, similarly, uh, we will talk about the phase one information first and then kind of go on to uh, some more recent information. So uh, they had a phase one study where 32 patients were enrolled um, uh, and they used multiple treatment doses to try and find uh, the the right uh, dose that they they wanted to use. And so it is important to note that uh, different from KSI 301, in this phase one study, all patients had been previously treated with anti-VEGF injections, had to be three anti-VEGF injections and they had to have a good response to those medications. So we know uh, that anti-VEGF works. Uh, And so in in looking at these patients, 90% reached three months without the need for retreatment and 70% reached six months without the need for retreatment. So again, this is something that is very promising in terms of the duration. Now, one of the things that we're all paying attention to is any possible side effects or challenges. And so in this study, in the phase one study, about 30% of patients lacked aggregation of the medication in the vitreous cavity, and therefore there was some particle dispersion into the anterior chamber. While this didn't require surgical intervention, it is something that we think about and is potentially, uh, and they thought was potentially challenging. And so basically after this phase one study, uh, they kind of optimized the manufacturing process Uh, to try and make sure they got better particle aggregation. Mm -hmm. So then that brings us to the phase 2B study, uh, the Altissimo study, uh, where uh, basically they had three arms arranged in a three to three to two design. And so arm one was sunitinib one milligram at baseline in six months. Arm two was sunitinib at two milligrams, and the goal was to do the two milligrams at six months. We'll talk about that a little more in a second. And then arm three was using a flibercept at two milligrams at baseline in every two months. And a key differentiator here uh, as well is there was not loading, there was not three months of loading doses in this uh, study. So the primary endpoint was the duration of time to the first rescue. It is important to note that enrollment was voluntarily paused because they had a 2A study looking at macular edema from uh, multiple causes, diabetes and vein occlusions. Uh, And they saw that with the two milligram dose, there was again, a high rate of particle dispersion into the anterior chamber. Uh, So they decided to suspend the two milligram dose. And so arm two here actually received two milligrams at baseline, but then one milligram at the six month mark. And so some of the preliminary top line results, uh, they excluded the two milligram arm 
Uh, and they uh, stressed that it was important to know that this was not powered for non-inferiority. So median time to rescue was five months with near 50% rescue free for at least six months and 62% rescue free for at least four months. And so again, this does show an extended duration. Now looking at anterior chamber uh, migration, it was only four out of 51 injections in the one milligram dose. So this is a lot less than was seen in the phase one uh, study. And so uh, and then, you know, the central thickness actually seemed to be pretty similar compared a one milligram sunitinib to a flibercept, but the best corrected visual acuity trended lower than a flibercept. It's obviously hard to know what this means because there's only a few patients in this study, and they seem to feel the vast majority of this decrease in visual acuity was driven by six patients in particular. So while this medication is promising from the duration aspect, and I think it has an interesting design and concept, I think we'll have to see what happens in the future with this medication, um, you know, based on the results of the early results uh, uh, of this study. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And I think that was an excellent summary of GB102 and Altissimo. You know, I think we were all surprised to see that not only did the best corrected visual acuity trend lower than in the aflibercept arm, it was nine letters lower at all time points. So a pretty big differential that's hard to make up, especially with other therapies that may be able to offer, you know, the similar median time to rescue therapy was five months. We have other therapeutics that are being looked at that potentially can do so, but with more impressive visual acuity outcomes. I believe they're adding an extension phase to Altissimo to see what's going to happen. So I'm excited to see what's going to come from that data. It's tough when you have studies that are smaller, because you're right that a few number of patients can drive results in a very positive or a negative way. And that might not reflect how it would potentially um, perform in, in a real world setting. So I think we are all waiting to hear more, but thank you very much for that summary. I really appreciate it. And now I want to end here with a case of yours. This is a patient that uh, you've treated, and I think it really highlights a number of different interesting points. The first being really just emphasizing this need that we talked about, the need for durability, the need for uh, agents to treat neovascular AMD that work better, that prevent some of the poor outcomes that we sometimes see, even despite our best efforts. But it also is very topical because it involves the COVID-19 pandemic and what can happen even with best laid plans and patients wanting to come back for their monthly or Q6 week injections, they may not be able to and some irreversible effects can happen as a result of that. So why don't we um, walk through this case together. Basil, just introduce us. This is an 85 year old woman and she already lost one eye, her right eye to exudative macular degeneration, didn't she? Yeah, so she's uh, one of my favorite patients, a very sweet lady, and uh, she was living uh, across the country previously, uh, and in her right eye, she started getting injections seven years ago, and so with the initial treat and extend, they tried to extend her uh, past six weeks, and unfortunately, she had a drop in vision. A couple of years later, uh, she was really having trouble getting to the office and tried to increase the interval again and was unsuccessful. And then the last time her husband had passed away and she wasn't able to get to the office and ended up with uh, limited vision in that eye. And so with each episode, uh, the fluid resolved, the vision declined, atrophy increased. Um, and she was left with poor vision. So she moved to town to be closer to family so she could have some support and make sure that she was able to make it to the office for her appointments because she knew how important it was considering how much vision she lost in the right eye. 
And she presents to us. So this is actually the note from the referring doctor or the baseline information where her vision was 2200 in the right eye um, after uh, multiple years of injections and 2025 in the left eye. When she presents to us or shortly before she comes into the office, she had started noticing blurry vision in the left eye. And uh, on the next slide, you can see uh, here's an example of what she looked like when she came to see us. So the right eye uh, has significant atrophy, and that explains her 2200 vision. In the left eye, her vision had dropped from 2025 on the outside to 2050 when uh, when she was seeing us. And so she was obviously concerned about this change. And so I think on the next slide, you can see that there's some intraretinal fluid there and a PED. And so at this time, we started, uh, we initiated our injections. And, uh, you know, she was really concerned, obviously, because uh, she had been driving uh, and now obviously did not feel comfortable to drive. And her family was, uh, was against that. And so she was starting to lose hope a little bit, um, but she stabilized with some initial injections. And so uh, we continue to give her uh, anti-VEGF injections uh, of bevacizumab. Um, and so her vision remained stable. And for a long time, we were able to keep her at the Q4 to six week interval. And she did really well. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when COVID happened, uh, she got the disease and ended up getting hospitalized. Um, and she ended up with subretinal fluid. She ended up with intraretinal fluid. Uh, and her vision dropped down to about 2080, unfortunately. And so she was really, really concerned then because not only had her vision decreased to 2080 at this point, but historically after she gets treated and when her fluid goes away, she develops even more atrophy and loses more vision. And so she was concerned about what would happen, but we switched her over to a flibercept and her vision fluctuated a little bit, but she ended up getting back to about the 2050 range. So she was really excited uh, that her vision had improved back to uh, uh, her baseline from when I had seen her anyway. Unfortunately, she was hospitalized again. And when she was hospitalized this next time, she ended up losing a significant amount of vision. Um, and that's kind of where she is now, where she had this intraretinal fluid and again, some subretinal fluid. Uh, and so we started giving her uh, a flibercept injections again, but her vision remains at 2150. And so um, she actually just came back to see us and her vision hasn't improved, although the fluid has improved some. And so, you know, she's really concerned at this point because she's lost a lot of her independence. Her eyes are at similar levels at this point. Um, and it's just really a challenge because she knows the importance of follow-up. She moved back to uh, my area where, where her children are so that she could uh, be here and make it to appointments on time. But unfortunately, you just can't control your health. And so this is kind of an example of why it would be really important to get medications that have extended duration. So that way, if people get sick for any reason, if people get hospitalized and various things like that, then the medication will still be on board and hopefully will reduce the risk of a significant drop in visual acuity. And in this patient, going from being independent, being able to drive in that one eye to unfortunately losing the vision in that eye and being basically at the point of being legally blind in both. So it's a very unfortunate situation and a very very, very kind uh, and amazing patient. And so this just kind of highlights the importance of having medications with extended duration uh, to kind of get our patients through these potentially troubling times. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I have several patients that come to mind that were also lost to follow up for various reasons during the pandemic. And 
think it's hard to explain to patients. They might not always grasp the fact that if you take a couple steps back, you may not have a guarantee of getting back to where you were, even if we resume monthly or even more frequent injections. It's really hard to explain that. So another need I think that is really highlighted here is she had a lot of atrophy, as you mentioned, even early on. And we know that unfortunately, macular atrophy, which we don't talk about as much as geographic atrophy, which is a hot topic right now, but macular atrophy, the atrophy that happens oftentimes after subretinal fluid is resorbed in our neovascular AMD patients is also unfortunately a very big driver of poor visual acuity outcomes, even if you end up successfully drying up fluid in these patients. And so my hope also with these novel agents is that with different mechanisms of action, hopefully the fibrosis, the atrophy that occur in these patients can also be targeted in addition to the longer durability needs that we have. And it makes me excited too, Basil, you know that there's a lot of great studies that are going right now in the phase three stage for uh, geographic atrophy in our dry AMD patients, perhaps the greatest unmet need of all in all of retina, but maybe, just maybe, those medications may be extended to treat macular atrophy in our wet AMD patients. It hasn't been looked at formally yet, but it's definitely a thought of mine that I think about, and um, you know, hopefully we'll have more options. I totally agree. I did have one question. You know, in a patient who has lost one eye already to neovascular AMD, uh, are you more likely to treat those patients monthly if they do convert to their other eye? And I ask that because it's not an, unfre- it's not an infrequent occurrence that you see the contralateral eye convert, right? We've seen that from the PROCON studies, a lot of our post-hoc analyses of our major AMD trials. What do you, how do you approach those patients differently, Basil? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think first, Uh, When a patient has already lost one eye, or at least a lot of the central vision in one eye to macular degeneration, they are much more likely to be on board with monthly injections because they know how significant it can be to lose the vision in that eye. And so I find that... um, With a patient's first eye, many times they want to extend as quickly as possible because the idea of getting the injections, the anxiety, the burden of many visits on them, on their family members, et cetera, can be really challenging. But when it comes to their second eye, a lot of patients are thinking about what it means for their independence. And so I am actually very hesitant to extend uh, those patients, even if they haven't had damage to the other eye due to extension. And I think most of the patients understand if we extend and we go too far and they get some level uh, of recurrence, what happens at that point? If we're able to get them back to their baseline, that's fantastic, but many times we're not. And they understand that with each one of those episodes, that can be potentially devastating to their long-term visual outcome. So I try to stay as close to four weeks as possible within reason. Uh, And I think most of the patients that are monocular uh, really understand that and, and they're able to work with it. Yeah, I I do the same and I have that same perspective as well. My last question is about fluid compartmentalization. So this patient had both subretinal fluid, but also had a lot of intraretinal fluid even early on when she first presented. Do you treat those types of fluid differently or are you someone who just aims to treat to dry no matter what kind of fluid it is? Yeah, so I think that depends on the situation. I think, you know, like you said, if it's a monocular patient um, or someone in their second eye, I am kind of treating them until dry and then I'm trying to keep them there at that point. I'm not really extending. Uh, Many times if 
um, if it's the first eye that's affected or if the vision's kind of in an intermediate range, I, I will often treat until all the intraretinal fluid is gone. Uh, that's my number one goal. If we get to the point where all the intraretinal fluid is gone and there's some subretinal fluid that is still present, I will consider extending in that situation and then we'll cut down uh, the interval if this subretinal fluid increases in size. But as long as it stays about the same size, I will likely continue uh, to extend. It seems to be the case, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this, that intraretinal fluid is a little bit more toxic uh, to the retina and to the vision in the long run, and maybe some level of subretinal fluid can be uh, even protective. And I think it's something that we don't fully know, but that is kind of how I approach it anyway. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Well, that is all the time that we have today. I wanted to thank you again, Dr. Basil Williams, for your excellent insights and for teaching us about these exciting agents, KSI 301, GB 102. Both of them have data that is still forthcoming. We are likely to hear about it in the next year or two. And I think it's all very exciting in addition to the many other investigational therapeutics that are being studied right now for this very, very important disease that affects and blinds many, many millions of patients every year. So I am so happy that we are forging ahead um, through our through our science. It's really an exciting time to be in retina. I also want to just take a moment again to thank Evolve Medical Education. Uh, thank you very much to them for organizing such wonderful educational initiatives. Check out some excellent programming on their website. Thank you again, Basil. It was always fun uh, chatting with you. Thanks so much, Christina. Really appreciate it. Of course. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Evolve Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.